0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Teagan Taylor, on Jagera and Turable land. Today, a special program on pregnancy and birth in Australia. Helping parents navigate the forest of prenatal screening options. What would it take to provide consistent gold standard maternity care all over Australia? And... Australia is one of the safest places in the world to give birth, and yet our health system sometimes fails women and their families and the professionals who provide support. The type of maternity care you receive can be a game of chance and depend largely on where you live and your ability to navigate the health system. The ABC recently launched the Birth Project, an investigation into birth and maternity care in Australia. And one of the key people involved in the project is my science unit colleague, Olivia Willis. Hi, Liv. Hi, Tegan. So it's been three-ish weeks since the project launched. Um, asking you're, you're asking people to tell you their experiences and you've received thousands of responses so far. What kind of things are people telling you?
2: Yeah, we have. We've been really overwhelmed by um, the number of people who have gotten in touch to share their experience. And it's a combination, I should say, of of women themselves who have given birth and also healthcare professionals who work in the maternity space. We're wanting to hear from both of them. Um, In terms of what we're hearing from people who are pregnant or have given birth, it's really a bit of a mixed bag. There are um, certainly some stories of people who have had excellent care. So we've heard, for example, from a lot of women who have gone through midwif free group practice programs, where they basically see the same midwife throughout their pregnancy and birth. And many of them have had a really positive experience. But we've also received a significant number of responses from people who have had pretty poor experiences in the maternity system. um, And in some cases have emerged from childbirth feeling quite traumatized by the experience. And there seem to be a few different factors that are contributing to that. So for some women, it may be that they sustained physical birth injuries um, and struggled to recover from that. For others, they felt like they may have had medical intervention that wasn't entirely necessary or that they didn't really consent to, um, or conversely, they didn't receive adequate pain relief when they asked for it. Um, so, it varies a little bit in terms of what's causing that birth trauma, but I guess the consistent theme is women not feeling heard or, or respected or not feeling in control of, of what happened to them during their birth. Um, and I guess the other the other key theme we're hearing a lot is issues around postpartum care. So, women feeling a bit unsupported, perhaps struggling with breastfeeding or their mental health or their recovery from birth um, and really struggling to get support either when they're in hospital um, soon after they've given birth or once they're back in the community um, because we know that the public health system in particular is pretty stretched. So we're getting a picture, I suppose, of a system that, that seems to be under pressure.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the public health system feeling stretched and it seems like in Australia we've got such a good healthcare system some people have excellent care in public hospitals. Is it a simply a question of just if you could pay for it, it's better?
2: No, not at all. And, you know, maternity care really varies it's like a lot of parts of the health system right it, it can be a bit of a postcode lottery and and the type of care you get can depend on where you live it can it can depend on how much money you've got if you want to access private care but it's also influenced by things like your own health literacy um, how good you are at navigating the health system so a good example is something like continuity of care so essentially what that means is you have one person who provides the majority of care throughout your pregnancy birth and postpartum period so you really get to know them they get to know you. In the public system, um, continuity of care is mostly with a midwife, and that's provided in something called a midwifery group practice program or caseload midwifery, which I mentioned a bit earlier, and. Research shows us that this type of care is associated with lower rates of intervention, a lower risk of preterm birth, less early stillbirth, and generally higher rates of of satisfaction. So it's generally the preferred model of care. Um, The issue is in the public system, it's actually really hard to access this type of care. And it's actually why some people opt to go private is simply just so they can see the same provider throughout their pregnancy and birth, um, whether that's an obstetrician usually or sometimes a private midwife. Um, But in the public system, only about 30% of models actually offer that continuity and maternal health experts say the proportion of women accessing that care is probably even smaller, somewhere around 15%. So these programs end up being really, really competitive Um, and whether you can get into one really depends on where you live and if by chance they have a spot available and the waiting lists are typically very long.
1: Yeah, we'll actually have more on continuity of care and what that model could look like Australia-wide later in the show. What about medical interventions, because we do hear a lot about caesarean rates, that sort of seems to be a bit of a marker. Does that vary across public and private, or
2: what, what are people telling you? Yeah, look, it's pretty polarising discussion, um, rates of medical intervention. And it's certainly something that we've seen come up a lot in the responses that we've received so far. So um, as you mentioned, and for a bit of context, rates of medical intervention during birth um, have increased quite substantially in the last couple of decades. So in Australia, about 37% of women who give birth will do so via C-section, and about half of first-time mums will be induced. And both those rates of nearly doubled really in the past two decades and I guess you know it's important to say that there's no doubt that those interventions can be absolutely life-saving when they're needed but I suppose there are questions around whether they are always needed and um, whether they're being used in some circumstances unnecessarily and you know, From the conversations I've had, there seems to be a real divide, I suppose, amongst healthcare professionals, particularly between obstetricians and midwives, not always, but sometimes, um, about what the best balance is to strike between um, protecting kind of physiological birth and offering medical interventions. And the tension is really about whether that balance we've got is right or we're moving too far towards intervention. So, you know, when you talk to obstetricians, they'll often say that rates of intervention are going up because pregnancies are increasingly complex. So we've got Mm -hmm. a higher proportion of women who are overweight or have diabetes, um, and sometimes that requires more intervention. Uh, Women are having babies a little bit later. Um, and also choice and preference, you know, there's an increased awareness about some of the risks of vaginal birth. And so for some people, they may choose to have a C-section, for example. Um, on the flip side, we've got midwives who often point out that those increases in intervention don't necessarily respond, correspond to an increase, um, in kind of pregnancy risks. So there are other factors that are kind of non-medical that might be influencing that increase, um, and I guess they point out that we're not necessarily seeing huge improvements in maternal and newborn outcomes despite that increase in intervention. So it's a, really, it's a really tricky space and there are different understandings of the risks and benefits. Liv, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Can't wait to hear more about the birth project down the track. Olivia Willis is a health reporter in the ABC Science Unit. If you want to check out the birth project or add your story, you can go to abc.net.au slash birthproject. They really want to hear from more obstetricians. You're listening to The Health Report. We've never been able to be more informed during pregnancy than we are today. Along with the screening ultrasounds that those of us who had babies in recent decades might have had, parents-to-be now have access to simple blood tests that can indicate whether baby might have a chromosome issue. They're also a way of finding out as early as 10 weeks whether you're having a boy or a girl. The trouble is parents who send off for these tests because they want peace of mind or want to find out the sex can feel blindsided when the result comes back high risk, maybe even for a condition they didn't know they were being tested for. That was the experience of Tanika Madden from Bunbury in Western Australia. I had a few people around me at the time
3: that were also pregnant and had
1: done the NIPT and
3: then found out the gender at 12 weeks. So I decided to do that basically and find out the gender quite early on. So I was offered that and paid for that without really yeah, informing myself, I guess, of what the test is actually fully testing for. So I'm aware that it was obviously, yeah, they test the three trisomy you know, like your Down syndrome and everything, but that was ba- and the gender <laughs> and that was basically it. That was all. And I was given, you know, a brief sort of description of what the test was and it yeah, basically was just explained that it comes back, you know, either high risk or low risk for those things. And that's about it. I wasn't aware that there was any other boxes being ticked. A week and a half later I got a phone call from my doctor, yeah, asking to come in and bring in a support person as she's been
1: The test results had come back in. What did you think when your doctor said come in and bring a support person with you?
3: Oh, obviously your mind, yeah, it goes to the worst possible thing straight away. I knew straight away that obviously it wasn't going to be good because I'd been informed that basically if it came back clear, she was just going to give me a phone call and tell me to come in and grab an envelope with the gender in it. So basically I was told that the result had come back. So I was having a little girl. So it came back high risk for monosomy X, which is also known as Turner syndrome which is where, so females are meant to have two X chromosomes, but Turner syndrome girls only have one. Mm -hmm. So I was given, you know, the option of, I think, medical termination. I was given the option of basically just, you know, doing nothing and continuing the pregnancy without, you know, knowing. The last option was to go up to a specialist hospital like KMH up in Perth and have an amniocentesis done at around 16 weeks. And, you know, that would confirm whether or not my baby has Turner syndrome. So I decided to go with that option. And then so yeah, around 16 weeks, I went up to the specialist hospital um, and had a scan done and I ended up declining the amniocentesis just as, yeah, I was, you know, obviously given the risks to also having that done and I decided that the risks were too high. And in that time, I'd done my own research. So Turner syndrome babies, there's only a 2% chance that these babies make it to birth so I obviously had that in the back of my mind the whole time
1: two percent um minutes.
3: yeah oh yeah so gosh. it was awful <laughs> and I found some stories of mums who were in a similar sort of position and had ended up having false positives so that's how I learned about how these tests can actually not always be correct <laughs> so they they didn't know if she was going to have Turner syndrome or not because I didn't do the amnio, so I did go my whole pregnancy not knowing It was awful. Yeah, it was um, the anxiety and just, it wasn't a good time. I always had that 2% (laughs) playing in the back of my mind the entire time. And then, yes, so she was born at birth. She didn't look like she had Turner syndrome. So they they went, yeah, look at that. Yeah, so she wasn't small for her gestation. She looked healthy. They thought she wouldn't have it, but I still just, I needed to know, (laughs) So I had to wait until she was five months old and we were finally able to do a full chromosome analysis and it came back that she had 46 XX chromosomes.
1: Oh, girl. Completely normal. <laughs> yes,
3: it was a false positive.
1: <laughs> you think that more information would help you be calmer but actually yeah. it can yeah. go the other way.
3: Yeah. You know, learning all about Turner Syndrome was my whole world for quite a while during that time as well. It really, really affected me and I feel quite robbed of what could have been you know with my pregnancy yeah if your doctor's offering it you kind of just assume yeah everything's going to be okay (laughs) or that you've been given the full description of what's actually being done basically just making sure that you yourself that you are informed
1: of what you're being tested for Tanika thank you so much awesome thank you Bunbury mum Tanika Madden And given the experiences of parents like Tanika, researchers in Melbourne have developed a decision aid to help people navigating the testing options available. I spoke to obstetrician Lisa Hoy about why she and her colleagues created the tool.
0: It's not until people start having a conversation and thinking about what's important to them that they can navigate the forest of choices. There aren't just one or two options to choose from now. There are multiple ones. So we thought a decision aid would be the best way to get people to think about the important things that will guide their decision. The other thing we wanted to be very clear about in this decision aid is that it's not a substitute for a conversation with a woman's midwife or doctor. It's just a starting point and it just helps them go to their consultation with a bit of information and having already a bit about what's important to them. Things like, you know, how much information do you want? What sort of choices would you make if you received an increased chance result or a low chance result? And it also importantly distinguishes between a screening test and a diagnostic test. That's a very common misconception that I see amongst pregnant women when they're trying to understand what a test result means.
1: So can you quickly define the difference between the two? So a screening test tells
0: somebody whether they have a higher than background chance of a condition or a lower than background chance. So it doesn't tell a person for certain whether they have the condition or or whether their baby carries a particular condition or, or not. It just says whether there's a high chance or a low chance. What we've traditionally done in pregnancy screening is offered a screening test first because a diagnostic test is an invasive procedure and it carries a small risk of miscarriage. So it's not really feasible or ethical to go straight to diagnostic testing for everyone. So a screening test is a safe way for women to get information about whether there's an increased chance or not. And if they do get an increased chance screening result, then they can have a further conversation with their medical practitioner and a genetic counsellor about whether to go on to have a diagnostic test. So, diagnostic tests include things like amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling or CVS. So, they're the invasive tests that might be offered.
2: It sometimes
1: feels like if there's a test available, that you sort of should take it. Has that sort of been what you found is people's sort of starting point with more and more tests coming into use?
0: That is one of the issues in this area. All testing is voluntary. And what we've found in Victoria, at least, is that most women do want some information about the chance of a chromosome condition in their baby. So when we're talking about screening for conditions like Down syndrome or Edwards syndrome, which are chromosome conditions, about 85% of pregnant women are choosing to have some form of screening test. But they are voluntary, and that's one of the things that the decision aid talks about from the very beginning and that's one of the steps that people work through, whether the screening test is actually something that's in line with their preferences and values or whether it's something that they might choose to decline.
1: So can you tell me about how the decision aid is being rolled out? Like how do people find out about it? It's online,
0: it's a web-based app, so it's freely available to anyone. It's housed at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute website And what it does is it asks the participants questions as well as providing some information and background knowledge. And then it makes suggestions based on the person's responses. So they might say, looks like you're leaning towards screening or leaning away from screening. And then if someone is interested in screening tests, it goes through further questions and then it discusses the types of screening tests that a person might be leaning towards or leaning away from. And then at the end, people can save the results of the decision aid so that they can email it to themselves or to their doctor or midwife. And that means that they can use that as a starting point for a discussion when they go for their visit to talk about what sort of screening tests they may or may not wish to have.
1: What sort of feedback have you had or have you sort of studied the uptake and the outcome of the decision aid formally?
0: It's only just been launched, so we will be evaluating it. We have done some pilot studies already which showed that the decision aid does help improve women's knowledge about these screening tests and we certainly involved consumers and end users in the development of this. So we hope that it's a useful resource. We're very keen to get feedback from anyone who wishes to provide feedback, but we will be doing a formal evaluation in the coming months.
1: What sort of qualitative feedback have you had from people? What kind of stories have they told you? I've heard from
0: people who have already had their babies and said that they wished that they'd had something like this when they were going through their pregnancy because they didn't quite understand exactly what tests they were having. Um, Some of them did get unexpected results.
1: It really fits into a broader theme that we come back to a lot on the health report about just over-screening and over-treating
0: I think it's important that people realise that prenatal screening is voluntary and that there is an ever-increasing number of conditions that we can detect before a baby is born. And that's what I think a lot of women don't quite appreciate, that they might think they're being tested for one condition, but the test might bring up information about a whole lot of other things they weren't expecting. So informed consent's a really important principle of any screening
1: test. Just articulating some of the reasons why people might choose not to screen, because I think the decision to choose to screen is relatively self evident. You know, you're actively choosing to screen for a thing, you want to know if that's a risk or not, if you're fully informed. Can you kind of maybe articulate some of the reasons why people might choose not to do this screening test? So.
0: Some women choose not to have screening tests because having information about a potential health condition in their baby isn't information they would find helpful during their pregnancy. And often that's because these women wouldn't consider changing any decisions they make about continuing the pregnancy based on the result of a prenatal diagnostic test. And that might include women who would never consider a termination of pregnancy, no matter how serious the condition is that their baby might have. Having said that, screening and diagnostic tests can still provide very useful information for people who would never consider a termination because it allows them to adjust to the diagnosis and for us to offer appropriate pregnancy care, you know, if we're expecting a baby with particular health needs. So we shouldn't consider that screening and diagnosis is necessarily tied to someone's attitudes
1: about termination of pregnancy. The process of going through a decision aid is in itself kind of gets you thinking about what you would do? Most people undergo tests because they want reassurance
0: about the health of their pregnancy and their baby and they haven't really thought too hard about what they would do if they received a result that didn't give them reassurance. Mm. So working through this means that it helps focuses people's minds a little bit on those sorts of unexpected scenarios, which they might not have thought about. And it also helps them start a conversation with their partners about what their thoughts would be if, you know, they did face a, a result that indicated an increased chance of a health condition in their baby.
1: Associate Professor Lisa Hoy, Specialist in Maternal Fetal Medicine at the Mercy Hospital for Women and the University of Melbourne. As we've heard, the kind of care you might get if you're pregnant varies wildly across Australia and even within the same city, despite the fact that we know what best practice looks like continuity of care. A national strategy around improving maternity care was launched in 2019, just in time to get overshadowed by the pandemic. I spoke to midwifery academic Zoe Bradfield from Curtin University about this earlier. It's indefensible to continue to ignore the
4: evidence that we have that is almost shouting from the rooftops to us now, that the systems of care that we have that are designed to provide care to the humans making the next generations of humans in Australia is broken. And what we need is a humanised approach to the care of humans. The good news is because often what happens when we say that to people is they imagine in their mind this system that is you know, bringing people into gold gilted halls where everyone gets their favourite herbal tea and, you know, just something that's really deluxe and over the top. The reality is what we're talking about is continuity of care. The evidence says to us that continuity of care with a known midwife results in improved outcomes for women and for their babies. It results in reduced unnecessarily healthcare costs it results in improved maternal engagement. And when mothers want to engage with the systems that are designed to care for them, then their outcomes are necessarily better because we can assess and screen and pick up any problems earlier. So it's improved outcomes and improved engagement and satisfaction by the humans that are accessing that care. It also results in improved workforce retention. And of course, we're in the middle of a workforce crisis. We know that we have a global shortage So what we know about midwives staying in the profession is that providing continuity of care is the most philosophically aligned version of care that midwives want to stay in the profession. Continuity of care with a known midwife is actually 20% cheaper than standard public fragmented care. Just dollar for dollar, direct health provision of those services is 20% cheaper. That's not taking into account improved health outcomes, reduced, you know, neonatal admissions, reduced unnecessary complications and unnecessary intervention, workforce attrition. Really, the question for us now is why wouldn't we provide that model of care?
1: But you can't just turn a tap on and be like, midwives for everyone. Like, what does actually resourcing this look like?
4: It does, um, particularly because the the health system that we have effectively hasn't changed much in 100 years, maybe a bit more. You know, way back when, before hospitals uh, were, you know, broadly accessible to people, they were seen as a luxury. Then enter the postmodern era where birth, instead of being seen as a community event, was brought into the hospital and under the auspices of medical models. Largely, in the last 10 to 20 years, we have had exponential increases in health expenditure, and what we've not seen is an exponential improvement in maternal mortality or morbidity or neonatal mortality and morbidity. So, what that probably tells us is that we've reached the tipping point. We've reached the point where the increased amounts of intervention that we have are possibly not making a difference or maybe
1: doing harm So I know that in lots of big public hospitals, there is fantastic midwifery-led models of care. I went through one twice, but they were really reserved for low-risk women. So how do you see that continuity of care with a known midwife working for people who don't fit into that low-risk category?
4: Yeah, look, the reality is every single human that is pregnant should know their midwife. It should not be risk dependent. We absolutely can build these models and we should and we must. And they're actually not that difficult to expand. So we have group practice midwifery. Broadly, we know around Australia, fewer than 20% of people receive their care through this model, this publicly funded midwifery group practice model. There are other kind of hybrid models. So I'm based in the West. We also have a community midwifery program where we have one of the nation's longest publicly funded home birth programs. So there are various ways for you to achieve continuity of midwifery care and the midwifery group practice model that you mentioned is one of the natural models to begin to expand on and it should not be risk dependent. Um, Some would argue that those uh, women who have higher risk factors may actually need continuity more. I'd suggest that we shouldn't be having an argument about who needs it more because every human needs it. And so whether I am completely healthy in my pregnancy or whether I have a pre-existing condition or whether I've had a previous complication, that means that I may potentially in the future have complication during birth, but I also might not. Every human that is pregnant needs humanised care and evidence tells us that the best way for that to happen is through continuity of care with a known midwife.
1: What does it cost to implement the strategy that you're talking about?
4: So there hasn't been an economic evaluation that would estimate this for the nation. But what we do have is really good modelling around a comparison of real world Australian based data to do this cost comparison between standard public fragmented care, where I see a random midwife or a random doctor, depending on which day I turn up. Yeah, it it is not individualised care. It is systems orientated care. So we don't, no one's done the modelling in terms of what it would cost for that at a national level, but we have um, using series sets of data that modelling has occurred and you could say that our current health spend could potentially be reduced by 20% if we were to implement this as the default model. Now, there are some women who and people who come to pregnancy who have complications that will absolutely need the inclusion of obstetric colleagues. And uh, this is a multidisciplinary gig that we do in maternity, and particularly for those who have pre-existing conditions, those with cardiac conditions, those with complex diabetes, and so on and so forth. We absolutely will be providing care in collaboration with obstetric colleagues um, and also with uh, maternal physicians as well who who get involved in supporting, you know, hypertensive disorders and the like. But that doesn't dispute the fact that midwives are experts in primary maternity care and that every human needs midwifery continuity
1: of care. So there was a national strategy that came out just before the pandemic, bad timing. Where to from here now in coming into 2023?
4: Yeah, so what we need is a national reporting framework. Ideally, what would really help this to move along is to ensure that there is jurisdictional buy-in from from each of the recommendations for reporting, the reality is the challenge of this dual system that we have where we have a Commonwealth you know, strategy and we have jurisdictions effectively rolling out most of the strategy is that there needs to be this unilateral agreement between each of the jurisdictions that they will actually commit to the recommendations of the the national strategy and that the initial reporting that when it comes if we if we do a reporting season that we're able to use that as a time that would be the ideal time to be honest to reevaluate the utility of the current plan that we have given that it was made before we knew this pandemic was coming and to really appraise the data that we have from the pandemic and our team has been involved in leading one of the largest national studies around the impacts of maternity care as a result of the covid-19 pandemic and what it showed us was that some of the things that we did were uh, really, really difficult for women, their families, communities, and societies. But what we found from each of the five cohorts that we engaged with, which was women, their partners, midwives, doctors, and midwifery students, is that every single cohort gave us a silver lining too. And it's there that we need to look first. Zoe, thank you so much. Pleasure,
1: Tegan. Dr Zoe Bradfield is a midwifery academic at Curtin University and that's all we've got time for on The Health Report tonight. If you want to contribute to The Birth Project or read the stories, you can go to abc.net.au slash birthproject and we'll catch you next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC
2: podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.